Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Benjamin Oldfield at Yale. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Yeah, so um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow here at the School of Medicine in the National Clinician Scholars Program, which is a fellowship program open to any medical practitioner, including nurses, um, who are interested in doing health services research, community-based participatory research, health policy, and want to get some experience in those kinds of things to kind of, you know, potentially launch a career in one of those directions. And so I am trained in internal medicine pediatrics. I do primary care for families in that capacity. And in the fellowship, I'm doing some research and advocacy projects uh, really that have to do with kind of two main areas. The first area I would say is on how we can better engage patients, families, and their communities in health systems and decision-making around health systems and health services research. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would include community-based participatory research, but also sort of what does it mean to really engage and empower and build capacity among particularly marginalized populations um, and how they are able to engage with and kind of direct the decision-making of primary care clinics, hospitals, research centers, that kind of stuff. So that's sort of one area. And then the other area that I'm doing work in um, has to do with addiction and access to addiction treatment and education around harm reduction for health profession students uh, here at Yale. So medical students, nursing school students, PAs. And Great. As a medical student here, I've had the opportunity to sit in one of your harm reduction lectures. And do you mind just kind of telling me a little bit more, like, what is harm reduction for our audience? Yeah, it makes me sad that uh, you're not telling me those things because you sat in on the class. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, So, yeah, harm reduction is, it's it's not necessarily just a, a sort of way of thinking. It's sort of like a set of strategies, I would say, that really came out of communities of people who use drugs. And so the idea behind harm reduction is that It's a practical set of strategies that we can use as people who use drugs, but also providers who work with this population or policymakers who are interested in policy change that supports these populations that will empower them to be agents of change in their own lives and in accessing treatment and reducing harm associated with drug use. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of assumes that drug use is something that is present in our society and probably isn't going to go away anytime soon at least. And drug use is a complex process and there are some safer ways of using drugs than others. And so if we can work with people who use drugs to understand where they're at, kind of meet them where they're at, and promote ways of drug use that are safer than others Mm -hmm. um, and provide resources to that effect then we may be able to, to you know, help, help, help turn the tide of this opioid epidemic and really kind of getting back to that first research interest of mine, engage a traditionally very marginalized population in research, policy change, medical care. Because harm reduction, more than just a kind of way of approaching treatment, it's also it's a social justice movement. It's about including traditionally marginalized populations in discussions of policy and research and medical right. care. Right, and in their own care. So... Can you give me a sort of concrete example of ways in which, you know, we can go about harm reduction, whether or not we're medical practitioners or just, you know, being members of the general population? Sure. So 
you know, a bunch come to mind. One example that is being discussed a lot right now is around safe injection facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, So a safe injection facility is something that exists in Canada and in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, None currently exist formally in the United States. But a safe injection facility is a space that is uh, that where, where drug use is um, able to happen in a safe and clean environment and where there are professionals around who can respond to overdoses, help connect people to treatment, and otherwise sort of participate in community building around a, a, a traditionally you know marginalized and isolated group. So, I bring that up because this is a hot topic today because a lot of people who are doing addiction-related research and advocacy are proposing that these things may be something that could be helpful, particularly in areas where there's a high concentration of intravenous drug use and Mm -hmm. uh, opioid overdose, so particularly urban centers. So there's particularly excitement in cities like Philadelphia. Right. I I heard Philly kind of approved uh, the proposal, right? And at least I read about it in January. Right, exactly. So, so these cities are are able to sort of propose ordinances that would, um, you know, develop relationships between uh, healthcare settings and local police force um, to make this possible. You know, you, you can imagine it's, it's it's legally complicated because, you know, having let's say heroin or using IV heroin is still illegal in the eyes of the federal law, but. If we are doing this in the context of a treatment setting for which there's a city ordinance that prevents, you know, police from arresting people in that setting or nearby that setting, um, that would be the idea. But there's obviously complications there. And so you ask what what can people do to kind of promote harm reduction? One thing would be to, you know, educate yourself about these sorts of practices like um, safe injection facilities. When there are discussions in local government, you know, city, state governments who are proposing ideas like this, participate in those discussions, offer your medical expertise about the benefit of them. And also just ask your patients what they think about this because Mm -hmm. this is becoming part of the kind of national discussion. And so, um, uh, again, getting back to that principle of harm reduction is kind of learning from people who use drugs about the best way to meet them where they're at and propose treatment options and policy change that kind of resonates with their lived experiences. Um, talk to people who use drugs about their thoughts about these and, and what they think and what they think would work. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure I, you know, carry these bows as a progress in my uh, medical career. Now, let me ask you, in a certain way, you've, you have two focuses, right? One specifically about engaging particularly marginalized populations who often are also uh, underserved when it comes to healthcare, but also doing um, work to re- uh, to address the, this current opioid epidemic. Why is addiction care particularly challenging, especially in uh, among the, on our underserved populations? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I think the kind of 30,000-foot view answer to that would would really require some historic contextualization of addiction in the United States particularly, which traditionally kind of the old model of addiction has been that it is not something that is a medical problem, um, but it is more of a behavioral problem or a character fault, something that's blameworthy. Mm -hmm. And so for centuries, addiction has been managed more in other institutions like in the courtroom or in the church more so than in the doctor's office or in the hospital. And so that context is important because that's partly why we see this divide in where our patients can go to get addiction treatment versus treatment for their diabetes. You know, oftentimes you have to go 
there's the AA meeting, there's the methadone clinic. These are the kind of addiction treatment organizations that are in separate buildings, separate facilities that don't communicate with the primary care clinic where they get their insulin for their diabetes and their HIV medicines, let's say, or their prenatal care. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the problem is that there's just that, that there's relics from that historical problem of, of really having addiction treatment be something outside of medical care. I think that doesn't explain fully the problem, though, because there's also just really still a lot of active stigma and discrimination against people who use drugs. And there's all kinds of reasons for why that is, but I think, you know, even people who, you know, know a lot of the science of addiction and are trained in the finest, you know, medical institutions and still harbor a lot of implicit prejudices and biases against people who use drugs. I think that idea that it's their fault, they are blameworthy, um, they're doing this to themselves, that can really kind of obstruct a, a, a what should be a therapeutic alliance between a patient and a provider. I think I would be remiss to not mention racism and classism as being part of this as well, because as particularly the, let's say, you know, the heroin epidemic in urban centers in, in the United States has not been only a problem of people of color, but has certainly been kind of promoted in the media as such for the last several decades. It's changing now with the current opioid epidemic, but I think that feeds into this problem of prejudice and discrimination against that population because it kind of lumps them in with another, you know, traditionally marginalized prejudiced population, which is urban poor people of color. So that's where that racism and classism, I think, come in as well. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of barriers for us to, to kind of change as a culture and as a medical culture, but also just as, a, as an American culture around our policies to, to kind of engage, honor, and work with these people. And so you, you made an interesting point just now about this very clear separation between centers of care for addiction, but also centers of care for medication for, say, chronic conditions like diabetes and HIV. And I can imagine that there are people who have to go to both, right? So you know, people who have diabetes or people who carry a diagnosis of HIV aren't immune from addiction issues. So I'm curious how your work specifically sort of targets uh, addressing the same issue of addiction treatment, but especially for those individuals who not only deal with addiction, but also are sort of concomitantly being treated for, say, HIV. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's also very appropriate for where we are here in New Haven, because We're lucky in New Haven that we have a lot of different resources for people, let's say, with HIV or people with opioid use disorder. But what that often means is, for instance, I have a patient at Fairhaven Community Health Center who uh, I see him for primary care. Um, He also gets his HIV care at at Fairhaven. He has been to three different methadone clinics uh, in, in the city. He speaks Spanish, and so he has to go to a different Spanish-speaking focused psychiatric center for his psychiatric care. Mm-hmm. Um, he's occasionally been jailed over the last several years, so occasionally he gets care in the correctional system. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he gets admitted to the hospital when he gets abscesses and um, needs to, them to be uh, incised and drained because he does still inject heroin every once in a while. And then he also goes to the community care van for... Um, clean needles occasionally. So this is one individual who is basically going to 
I don't know how many institutions I just named, but but you know somewhere between five and ten medical institutions in a small city to get the evidence-based care that he needs. It's almost like a full-time job for him to be traipsing around town, keeping all these appointments, knowing when things are open, uh, uh, negotiating transportation, all that stuff. So this sort of care fragmentation and redundancy is one of the big problems that people like this face. So one solution would be, can we integrate that care better? So could we, could we think of the, of the Federally Qualified Health Center truly as a medical home for, for patients like the one I just explained? where he could get, for instance, his clean syringes, his HIV meds, his treatment for opioid use disorder, whether it's methadone or buprenorphine or naltrexone, his psychiatric care. You know, a, a real medical home would have all those things for this, this patient and, and this population uh, in one setting. I don't think that works for everybody. You know, some people do prefer to have their care a little bit a little bit separated it out, mm-hmm. um, but but for the most part, I think that would save our system a lot of redundancy and just make more sense for patients if we can actually coordinate their care and integrate it better in one single institution. Yeah, I really appreciate this sort of uh, uh, notion of engaging and integrating people's care, such that it just kind of makes it simpler for them to access the you know all the facilities that they need to access to get their care and also it probably keeps them more engaged with the healthcare system overall right yeah yeah i think that's true i think um, again not for everybody cuz integrating care i don't think it's sort of a one size fits all for all patients but mm-hmm. i think if we can demonstrate that we are seeing the whole patient and we want to we want to reach out and help the whole patient in our healthcare institutions, particularly ones that you know think of themselves as primary care centers, prim- you know, uh, patient-centered medical homes. It just seems to it, it makes sense that we should we should be thoughtful as much about the addiction and the schizophrenia as we are about the diabetes and the toe infection. You know, it, right. should, it should all be um, there should all be kind of initial points of contact and initial care plans that can be initiated in one setting. I think. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I have one more question for you, and this may turn into multiple questions, but what are some ways that you have found that works, that work in terms of getting your patients more engaged in both in their care, but also generally in the relationship that you have with them as a provider? Yeah, good question. I think one thing that I've been looking into recently is the, the evidence around community advisory boards mm-hmm. and what we call at Yale New Haven Hospital uh, patient and family advisory councils or PFACs. Mm-hmm. So these are organizations of patients or family members of patients, basically people who use services at, let's say, Yale New Haven Hospital, who come together on a, on a, on a regular basis and advise the health system in some capacity. Um, and these programs like that are becoming more and more popular, and they're almost becoming obligatory because they are uh, oftentimes linked to reimbursement or linked to getting a magnet status for, for this. Uh, that's a nursing certification of a hospital as being a magnet. Um, oftentimes, demonstrating that you are engaging patients somehow um, is an important prerequisite for funding, awards, whatever it might be. And so, these things are popping up all over the place, but. They're not necessarily doing so in an evidence-based way yet. And so um, I've spent time on the Patient Family Advisory Council at the hospital um, and did a a systematic review of 
patients, you know, community advisory boards and, and PFACs, patient family advisory councils, uh, to try to get a sense of sort of what are best practices, how can we engage patients in that way, what works, what doesn't. Um, and there's just, there's not a lot out there. So mm. you have these sorts of programs that are being increasingly promoted, but um, there's not a lot of evidence for them. And one of my concerns is that these programs oftentimes may involve cherry picking of individuals who um, won't rock the boat, but will help maintain the status quo at the hospital, as opposed to potentially getting those opinions from people who would be the most useful. So, you know, just, just for example, in, at, at uh, Yona Haven Hospital, um, finding, you know, getting the, the opinions from people who live around the hospital, who live in the hill, um, who are who are acutely affected by decisions that the hospital makes around land use, land acquisition, policies, things like that. Um, I think right now it tends to be people who do not live near the hospital, who are already CEOs of organizations uh-huh. who are sitting in on these on these boards. And I, you know, I'm making generalizations here, general, generalizations, but I think um, we need to think more about who is being represented on these committees um, and how we can uh, really make their voices heard a, a little bit more. So that's one of the things I was trying to focus on with the systematic review. Absolutely. That's great. And then on the sort of interpersonal physician-patient relationship front, I just read a piece you wrote recently in uh, JAMA about your connecting with pa- with your uh, with a teenage patient through music. Do you mind telling us just a tiny bit about that interaction and how you think physicians overall can take that um, and integrate such practices in their day-to-day? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for reading that piece. Um, I think uh, so that the, the essay was about drawing from this idea of, of narrative medicine and the medical humanities and thinking about how we can use those strategies. So I think you know, narrative medicine is basically a, a, a it's almost like a clinical approach. It's, it's using uh, storytelling and story listening um, in ways that will improve patient care. Um, so thinking kind of critically about how we are listening to stories that patients are telling us, how we are thinking critically about how we generate our own stories to motivate treatment plans or to communicate with other physicians or to communicate with society at large through op-eds and things like that. This is what narrative medicine is all about. And a lot of what narrative medicine draws from is a more sort of traditional Western canon of art and literature. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, I think that's the kind of art and literature that gets celebrated in academic settings more so than others. And it also kind of harkens back to, I think, old ideas of of the physician as reader. You know, mm-hmm. Osler was a very well-read physician who knew the sort of the canon of, of Latin and Greek quite well and, and, and would, would quote um, from those sorts of texts. And I, I think we're still kind of in that mode of the literate doctor is the person who knows kind of the great Western works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for sure not, not across the board, but the majority of the, of, of the time I think narrative medicine programs are focusing on the, the, you know, the works of Henry James and the, the, the poetry of Emily Dickinson. And what I was trying to get in this essay is that if we're, if we're trying to use arts and literature to better understand our work and our relationships with our patients, if we're just kind of reading and talking about the kind of art and literature that we as a professional class of physicians enjoy, we may be missing a big part of the picture, which is 
what about the arts, the libraries of arts and culture and, 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 and literature that our patients are, are consuming and talking about on a daily basis? And so what I was trying to do with this essay was demonstrate an example of me just sort of trying to ask an adolescent patient what he is listening to, get, what gets him excited, what gets him motivated. Um, and in this case, it was the music of Kendrick Lamar and talk about how he educated me about how that music was relevant to his own life and offered some lessons about the challenges and strengths that he had. Um, and so my hope was to use that as an example, not to say that, that hip-hop music is kind of, is, 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 is all wonderful and, and, and is the, the, the answer to, you know, the problems of, of not communicating well with patients, but that asking the question of what arts and literature is important to patients can be an important starting point to communicating better with them. And so mm-hmm. I think in some ways it, I was trying to get back to this idea of, of health literacy because in that situation with that adolescent patient, I felt like there was a mutual health literacy that was happening because we were communicating about his health and I was using my expertise as a physician to help him understand his risks and his assets. But he was also educating me about the way that, that he communicates, what motivates him, what gets him excited. And so I think we need to think about health literacy more uh, with, with more reciprocity than that. I think traditionally health literacy tends to be something we burden patients with. It's like, is that Absolutely. patient health literate or not? Because it's, it's sort of, again, getting back to the idea of it's sort of, it's the patient's problem if, if health literacy is, is, if the patient is not health literate. I mean, literally, it is something that we put on a patient's problem list is poor health literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, poor historian. When, right. Another, another good example of that. When really the problem is in it's the a diet. Mutual, yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that explanation. And I really appreciate continuously learning from uh, your experience. And I hope to have you back on the pod soon. Great. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.